Well, folks, uh, normally uh, I, I want to jump right into the sermon uh, today because of the time that we have here. Uh, normally when I come to a church, we talk about the chaplaincy within the South Sudanese Army. I have lived in Sudan for 26, going on 27 years, and been training chaplains for the South Sudanese Army for about 23. All of my men are uh, frontline combat chaplains. We're all armed. We all go into battle. And I know that seems a little strange, folks, but as we get in the message, I think you'll understand a little bit better. But this morning, we really don't have <clears throat> time to talk about that. Uh, we have a division of our ministry. We call it ghost operations. It's the invisible hand into the closed world of radical Islam. And we are in nine of the ten most dangerous Islamic countries in the world. We have over 400 missionaries in the underground there. When Afghanistan collapsed overnight, we had a tremendous problem on our hand. We had 22 people in the underground in Afghanistan with their extended families, over 200 people. I got a call from our Dutch office and they said, Wes, they're all gonna be killed for their faith. Uh, we had one family that had been over there. They had led three Islamic families to Christ. They were discipling them. Uh, they went into hiding. The Taliban found the three families. They killed mother, father, children, even down to the babies. And so I went down to my staff and I said, guys, we're going into wartime operations. One week later, five former Navy SEALs would fly in. Uh, three Marines, all Special Forces, one Army Green Beret, and one brother with the CIA. And we planned operations into Afghanistan. Uh, shortly after that, I would send in two teams simultaneously. The first one would fly in at a chopper and land at 12,000 feet and would deploy Marines and SEALs. I went with the second team. We were told we were going to climb 2,000 feet, but we ended up having to climb to 11,500 feet to get to our location. And then we launched our drones. And guys, what we're looking for is what's called a rat line. A rat line is an escape route of how to get people out of a country. And I can't go into it because it's an ongoing operation at this time. As we were going up the mountain, it was really the most difficult climb I think all of us had ever made. There were no trails on the mountain. Uh, there, nobody's ever been there before. They didn't have a name for the mountain. And uh, they have a, a, what's called an ibex. It's a very rare mountain goat. And uh, maybe 5% of the mountain has an ibex trail, which is about six inches. And then you've got gravel, shell, and uh, sand sliding into it. And if you miss a step, you literally fall 1,000 feet and die. And I was coming down the side of one mountain, and all of a sudden I began to hear someone sliding behind me. And I didn't have time to think about it. I just reached back and I grabbed, and I caught our interpreter as he was going off the side of the mountain. And uh, when we got off the mountain, uh, all of our toenails were black with the blood that was under them because of the difficulty of the climb. I actually lost two toenails on that mountain. Fortunately, they grew back. Sometimes they don't grow back. Uh, we had one brother by the name of Rodney. Rodney was with the elite SEAL Team 6, uh, 22 years with the SEALs, 12 years with SEAL Team 6, 13 years with the CIA. And I believe that he lost uh, three toenails on the mountain. So that tells you how difficult that climb was. But then God began to do miracles. And uh, we got a call from YWAM, Youth with a Mission. They said, our country director is in the city of Maz. The Taliban knows he's there. Uh, they are hunting him. They will find him within two hours. And guys, they had written a very graphic letter before the collapse of Afghanistan. And they said, we're going to butcher you. We're going to slaughter you. There's no forgiveness for what you have done. And I said, guys, two hours is not a lot of time. You should have got a hold of us a long time before this. And uh, But I had two guys on my staff, uh, uh, Luke. Uh, Luke was uh, 14 years in the Marine Corps, Special Forces, uh, 22 years with the FBI's counterterrorism. And Luke speaks fluent Arabic in multiple dialects. He's tested at genius level, plus he's got a good grasp of five other languages. Also, Brent, who's on my staff, was in Second Force Recon, the lead of the Marine Corps Special Forces. 
and very intelligent man. I said, guys, do we have any assets in this part of the world? Fortunately, I believe we were able to get a hold of some Pakistani mercenaries, and an hour later they showed up at the door. We picked the kid up. We got him out of there. An hour later, Taliban was at the door. Had we not got there, they would have killed this kid. Then we got a call from Heather Mercer. Many of you might remember her. Very famous missionary, was put in prison by the Taliban, I believe, in 2000, was released by U.S. forces in 2001. And uh, she called up, and I believe she said that I have uh, 26 people in country. Uh, they are all believers. They will all be killed for their faith. Can you guys help me? Now, when she called, I was not in the office. Brent took the call, and he called me up and said, Russ, what do you want to do? I said, let's green light the operation. So we sent an operational team. We got those 26 out. Uh, but the one that surprised me the most is I got a call from Shannon Spam. Uh, Mike Spann was the first CIA officer killed in Afghanistan back in 2001. Uh, and uh, folks, I remember it like it was yesterday because it really troubled me. They trusted the Taliban uh, on an honor system, which I knew that we could not trust. And uh, what had happened was uh, uh, Mike had been in the Marine Corps. He had been recruited by the CIA. Shannon had also been recruited by the CIA. They met at the farm, which is a training base, <coughs> fell in love, got married, and had three kids. When the U.S. went in there, they were with the Alpha team, which was the first team to go in. And uh, Shannon called up our office, and uh, she asked, uh, told us that she had 28 people and that they were not believers, uh, but they had all helped the U.S. government. And would we help them to get them out? Once again, I was out of the office, and Brent called me on the phone. He said, Wes, we got 28 people that helped the government. What do you want to do? I said, let's green light the operation. And we went in, and we got all 28 of those out also, guys. Now, what was happened after that, Shannon actually flew out to Southern California to meet with me. And she she's a very godly woman. She teaches women's conferences, really loves the Lord. And Shannon told us that when Afghanistan began uh, to collapse, because of her connection within the CIA, CIA, she can go to any CIA station office in the world and get information. Well, she was getting a tremendous amount of people out of Afghanistan. But when the last U.S. aircraft left, she said, I could not get anybody out of Afghanistan. And uh, she said that she was walking around and she was praying one night. And she was going, Lord, I don't know what to do. And the Lord said, Shannon, why are you going to the world? Why are you not going to my people? And she goes, God, I don't know your people. Well, he gave her the name of a gentleman. His name was uh, Bob Shank. Now, folks, I do not know this gentleman. I understand that he wrote the master's program. And he said, Shannon, you need to call Far Reaching Ministries. And guys, after she called us, she went and read our website. And if you're not a Christian and you don't understand it, uh, our website is really a little bit hard to understand. We probably look a little bit more something like Blackwater than we do a foreign mission organization. We're involved in five different wars around the world, and we have men in there trying to rescue lives in all parts of these worlds. And so she called up Bob, and she said, Bob, who is Wes Bentley, who is Brent, and who is Far Reaching Ministries? He said, Shannon, if my family were in Afghanistan, these are the two men that I would want to go and get them. Well, guys, the great thing that's come out of this, Shannon has become a part of our team and has been working with us ever since. Uh, we are close to having 1,750 people out of Afghanistan at this time. Uh, <clears throat> the very difficult thing that's going on, though, is all foreign governments, all foreign agencies, all U.S. agencies, all NGOs, 
everybody that we know of has pulled out of Afghanistan. We're the last organization there. And we have over 3,500 more requests to extract people out of Afghanistan. And I believe that God has called us to intervene on behalf of these people to save them. And guys, as believers, one of the things that we need to realize is God has called us to live these exceptional lives for the gospel. We are supposed to let our light so shine before men that they see our Heavenly Father. I really believe in the world that we're in today that much of the church and much of the mission world has lost the focus of what the Great Commission really is. I see so many missionaries, they go out to the field, they've been on the field one or two years, and they come out and they write a book about their mission experience. Now guys, it's always self-published, and between the ones that they sell at the few churches they go to and the one they give to their families, they have a distribution of about 75. Why? It's not a work of the Holy Spirit. When Brother Andrew came out with his book 40 years ago, it sold in the tens of millions. Why? Because it was a work of the Holy Spirit. But so many people in the world today are trying to become famous as Christians, whether they're missionaries or they're pastors. Everyone seems to want to write a book today. And I'm not saying there isn't some value in that. I have had over 20 people try to get me to write a book about my life. And guys, I've always refused to do it. I said, if the Lord ever tells me to write a book, I will. And I understand the value is a blueprint for future missionaries. But I believe this is the book that the world needs. I don't believe that they need all of our testimonies. And this is what's missing in the body of Christ. You know, guys, I had a Hollywood movie producer meet with me, and he literally spent 10 hours with my family. And he tried to get me to do a movie about my life. He wanted to make me out to be this Christian Rambo. And I told the guy, I said, no. And he goes, Wes, I am giving you what everybody dreams of. I said, everybody that's carnal. The Bible says that no flesh shall glory in the presence of God. And I will not get my reward on this earth and miss what I was created to do in heaven. And guys, he was very angry with me, but it doesn't matter. But see, our motives are very important in why we do what we do. You know, one of my favorite people in the Word of God is the prophet Jeremiah. And there's a lot of reasons why I like the Jer prophet Jeremiah. He's very unique among prophets of the Lord. He's not only a prophet of the Lord, guys, but he's a priest of the Lord. And what is unique about that, there were only three prophets in the Old Testament that were priests. It was Jeremiah, Zechariah, and Ezekiel. And the job of the priest is to bring people into close fellowship with their God. Well, for 40 years, Jeremiah labors to get the children of Israel to repent, and they refuse to do it. And God sends the Babylonian Empire and crushes them and takes them off into exile for 70 years. When I used to read this, guys, I used to wonder, how could a nation be so blind? How could they be so hard towards God's heart up until the last 10 years of our nation? And now it's become very, very clear to me why the very hardness of heart towards the things of the kingdom. The Bible says the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. And it is very, very much true. You know, guys, in Jeremiah's life, He's he's, he said in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, and it doesn't read well in the King James Version. It reads very well in the NIV Version. But he says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his footsteps. It means that our lives do not belong to us. And that's exactly what happened to Jeremiah. God did not allow him to marry because of the hardship that he would go through. And guys, at, Jeremiah probably got to the end of his life, and he might have even felt like a failure. But see, the thing was, Jeremiah would have great success in his life. He would just never live to see it. It would come after his life. Out of Jeremiah's life would come Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Out of his life would come the prophet Daniel. Out of his life would come Ezekiel. And when King Nebuchadnezzar built a golden altar and commanded that the whole world bow down and worship, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had seen what happened when a nation rejected their God and the warnings of the prophet Jeremiah. And they know that he has the power of life and death over them, but they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, O King Nebuchadnezzar, we're not even careful on how we're going to answer you about this. We know our God has the ability to deliver us, but whether he delivers us or not, we will not bow down to your God. And King Nebuchadnezzar throws them in the fiery furnace, and God delivers them. And an entire generation knows who the living God is. Seventy years later, it will be Daniel's turn. Once again, required to worship a false god. Once again, refuses to do it. And he's thrown into the lion's den. Once again, God rescues him. And another entire generation knows who the living God is. But guys, the one that's probably most relevant to our generation is the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel says twice in the book of Ezekiel, we're to go to the sinners, we're to tell them about their sin. If we do not go to the sinners and we do not tell them about their sin and they die in their sin, God will require their blood on our head. And guys, it's never been more relevant than today in this generation. We're living in a time where our nation is telling great lies, especially this administration. One of the great lies out there, guys, is that the Christian church is persecuting the homosexual transgender community. Guys, it's a lie. Had there been some people that might have been harsh, there always are, guys. But by and large, there's no truth in it at all. The truth of the matter is the Christian church didn't care. We didn't warn them. We didn't say anything. We just didn't care. And God says, I'm going to require their blood on your head. Many churches are changing their theology and saying, we just need to accept them and love them. But the Bible says if they practice this, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's not loving to tell someone that you're okay when you will die and perish in your sin. And God says, one of the things God says, guys, and it's a warning to people in the church, he says, if you take away from the words of my book, I'm going to take your name out of the book of life. And it is a warning. You need to be careful how you tread in this area. In my personal life, I have led 10 homosexual women to Christ. Now, guys, I want you to hear me out on this because I tell these ladies, I say, first of all, I don't hate you. I don't even know who you are, so why would I hate you? I said, if the Bible didn't deal with this issue, I would not be dealing with this issue, but the Word of God does. And in Romans chapter 1, it says, if you practice this lifestyle, you will perish. And guys, you will tell me that, well, I was born this way. Well, the problem with that argument was the serial killer will say he was born this way. The pedophile will say he was born this way. The young man that wants to sleep with every pretty girl will say he was born this way. Jesus Christ said, you must be born again. You must be born out of a life of sin into a life following Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening. And guys, we see in Jeremiah how he was so able to stand because in Jeremiah chapter 15 and verse 16, he tells us about his life. He said, when your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. I never said in the company of revelers, I never made merry with them. I said alone, because your hand was heavy upon me. And this is the way we are supposed to be as believers. God's word is supposed to be very important to us. Guys, Jeremiah would go through great times of hardship where he was very discouraged. They called him the weeping prophet. And yet, you would think that God would say, Jeremiah, just hang on, you've done a great job. But that's not how God deals with Jeremiah. He's Jeremiah, he says, if the foot soldiers have wearied you, how will you handle mounted horsemen? And what he's saying is in the times of old, they would go out to fight the armies. Well, the foot soldiers would come first. They would be men with swords and shields and battle axes. But then would come the heavy cavalry, men on horses covered in armor. 
and they would come charging at you with these long lances coming down. And he's saying, if the foot soldier has wearied you, how will you handle mounted horsemen? Basically what the Lord is saying to Jeremiah is buck up, become strong. Guys, one of the things that we need to understand is we're living in a generation where we are raising generations of effeminate men. Men are not supposed to be effeminate. They're not supposed to behave this way. This is not the way we're supposed to behave in our life. King David, when he's dying, he's talking to his son Solomon. And guys, I've seen a lot of men die in my life. I've had over 70 of my staff killed in the war in southern Sudan. When men are dying, normally the thing they say is, tell my wife I love them or tell my mother. If they're not married, it's their mother. If they're married, it's their wife. But what does David say to Solomon? He said, Solomon, be strong and therefore prove yourself to be a man. A part of being a Christian man is we are supposed to be strong, and yet we're living in a time where men are effeminate. You know, guys, I'm moving through this very fastly because we just have too much information to share with you. We are in the Ukraine right now, and I remember that when God called me to the Ukraine, I said, Lord, we're involved in four other wars. Do you really want us to go into another war? Well, God spoke to me in the book of Proverbs. In chapter 24, in verse 10, it says, if you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weigh the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? See, God says we have a responsibility to care for those that are being persecuted and those that are being served. In the Ukraine right now, we are feeding 15,000 people a month. We are building 100 temporary homes. We're working with the chaplains all at the front lines. And guys, I don't have time to go into this, but I want to share with you that I flew to the Ukraine, I mean, I flew to Afghan, uh, Amsterdam on my way to the Ukraine on April 4th of last year. On April 6th, I had a vision, or a dream, I should say. Guys, I've walked with the Lord for 46 years and never went back to the world. There was nothing that the world ever had that I needed once I found Jesus Christ. But in the 46 years of being a believer, I've only had three dreams before this that I felt God was speaking to me. And in my dream, I was looking for a Christian brother that had gone missing in the Ukraine. Billy Rutledge was the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Hatteras Island. And guys, Billy is a tough guy. He will go anywhere in the world for the gospel. And tell you how tough he is, he used to be six foot four, but he's got cancer and now he's five foot eight. That tells you how much the cancer has eaten his body. And yet he goes to the most dangerous places. Well, in my dream, he had gone missing and I was looking for him. And I got to a certain city and I asked, they said, he's not here. They said, but there's a sniper in the city that's killing people. Well, I used to be a professional shooter when I was in the Marine Corps. I shoot competition and my coach actually said, Wes, you are so good with weapons, I think that you could shoot the Olympics. And I told him, I don't want to shoot the Olympics, I just want to shoot other people. So I never had any interest in going down that road. Evidently, I did not know Christ at that time. But guys, in my dream, I took the guy out. But I continued to look for Billy, and I got to a certain city, and they go, he's not here, but there's a sniper in a high-rise, and he's killing a lot of people. And they go, we can't get to him, because every time we approach the building, he shoots us. And I said, don't worry about it, I know how to deal with this. And guys, in my dream, I entered the building with another sniper. And it's strange, because I don't know why, but in the dream, I knew exactly who he was. Since I've woken up April 6th, I can't remember who it was. I don't know why the Lord let me know then and not now. It's a mystery to me. <clears throat> but I said to the guy, we're going to clear this floor by floor. I'm going to take the lead, but you need to watch because if we miss him, he's going to come up behind us and he'll smoke us. So you better be on the watch. 
we got up to about the 18th floor and I rounded the corner of the stairway and there was a big hallway and on the floor there was carpet and some plastic sheeting and it was moving. Well, I immediately raised my weapon to fire because I thought there's a sniper hiding under there. But the Lord told me, don't shoot. So I slowly approached it and I got down and I reached down and I pulled back the carpet. I kept my weapon trained and there were four little boys in there all between the age of two and five years old. And they were so afraid. And I looked at the boys, I said, where are your parents? They go, we don't know. I go, do you little boys want to come home and live with me? And guys, they all got up and they came and put their arms around my leg. And I woke up, it was 4.30 in the morning, and I had tears running out of my eyes. I have never in my life that I know of ever woken up with tears in my eyes. My wife, Vicki, had gotten up about 3.30. She had been studying the Word, and she was shocked. She's never seen me cry in our entire marriage. I think the last time I cried was 40 years ago. I was in California, and I went to an In-N-Out hamburger. And when I left, they had accidentally stuck an extra cheeseburger in my bag. <laughs> and I still get a little emotional when I think about it. <laughs> but that's the last time I think that I ever had a tear in my eye. And she said, honey, what happened? So I retold her the dream. I said, Vicki, I don't know what this means, but I feel it has spiritual significance. Are those boys out there and I'm supposed to find them? I don't know. Well, we felt like we needed an interpretation, and God gave us one through two godly men. And guys, what it was is that all across the Ukraine, parents left to go get firewood, to get food, to get water, and they didn't come home. We just bought two new orphanages over there, two buildings for orphanages. All across the Ukraine, the elderly are committing suicide. See, their homes have been destroyed, and if they could get their pension, it's $75 to $150 a month. And they don't know how to rebuild. They're killing themselves. And God wants the church to care. Now, guys, I'm going to take a turn here, and please understand, I, I hate doing this, but we've got too much going on. In South America, Central America, we are at war with the cartels. The cartels down there are selling children into prostitution. We have an orphanage down there, and I have a three-year-old that needs reconstructive surgery on both her front and back from all the rape that she went through. As many as 10 men a day were using her. Guys, I have a grandson. He's three years old, and I, he doesn't barely know how to talk. And I can't imagine that men would, you know, she's embarrassed because she can't stop urinating on herself because of the damage done to her. I have a seven-year-old that needs reconstructive surgery, and she's HIV positive. I have several five years old that need both reconstructive surgery. Well, the cartels down there are trying to get the children. And Gabriel, we call him Gabriel, it's his code name, we can't give his name for security reasons. Gabriel got a call from a senator in South America. He said, hey, I've heard about your work, it's great work, I wanna help you guys. Uh, I can give you all the money and all the protection you need. He says, all I'm going to require from you is two young girls every year. And Gabriel said, absolutely not. Well, guys, I know that it was just a ploy. They know if they could get us to compromise on the two, they're going to take them all. And the senator said, I can make life hard for you. And guys, he did. A few days later, Child Protective Services came in, so-called, and took 15 of our kids. We sent four people with them. One of the heads of Child Protective Services called us and said, guys, it's not us. It's people above us, and we don't have the power to fight the cartel. And the only reason I found out about this is because 
I, I have my staff check on all of our projects every week. Well, Edward came and told me, Gabriel was calling everybody trying to raise money to get those kids back. And what they said was, for, for 25 to 66 kids, you have to show $10,000 a month coming in. And Gabriel didn't call me. He was calling everybody else. So I said, so I'm talking to him. I said, Gabriel, I go, if I give you the $10,000, can you get the ch children back? He goes, yes. And a lot of people came up to me because they know the extreme pressure. We're, we're involved in all these wars, having to care for so many people. And I think that they were very well-meaning. They said, you know, Wes, you can't save everybody. It's not your responsibility. I said, guys, I understand that. But having rescued these children once, I will not let them go back to the cartel. So I sent the $30,000, and we got the kids back. This war's not over. We're still fighting it. One of the things that happened, Gabriel was taken by the police to a raid. They found two toddlers on a table. Their bodies were still warm. They were flayed open, and all their internal organs were taken out. Why? Superstitious people are eating them because it brings, they believe it brings them long life. And I believe that God has called men to behave as men, to protect those that do not have the ability to protect themselves. You know, guys, I know that people don't understand this. And I have got some flack from people in my newsletter. Most people do understand, but I tell them, if it ha comes to guns, we're going to go to guns. But I will not let them take these children. There are things in this life that are worth dying for. And we as men of God are supposed to protect those that do not have the ability to protect themselves. We're not to fear man, we are to fear the Lord. And yet we have such a cowardly generation of senators, congressmen, pastors, leaders. Nobody will stand for anything that's right anymore. Everything has to be acceptable. And if you say that you're not, it's not acceptable, then you're supposed to be a hater. When we know that this is nonsense, that they're teaching truths that are not truths. When you cannot tell a little five-year-old boy he's a five-year-old boy or a little five-year-old girl she's a four-year-old, five-year-old girl. You know, one of the ladies that volunteers in my office, she's in the medical field, and she was telling me there's a case in her office right now where a family is trying to get their four-year-old a sex change. Now, guys, no four-year-old is thinking about a sex change. My grandson is three years old. He wants to be a puppy. Should I put a tail on him? Should I inject him with dog hormones? When have we lost all common sense to understand the difference between right and wrong? And as men of God and women of God, the Bible says we're to stand in the gap, and we are supposed to protect those that do not have the ability to protect themselves. Guys, we're going to show you a DVD here real quick. And as you watch this, every child that you see in this we've rescued, every one of these children has been sexually molested. Most of the girls over 10 times a day. Every child in here needs reconstructive surgery, or almost all of them. Some of them have syphilis, some of them have HIV. But this is what happens when you protect children. Let's go ahead and show that, guys. I think that one of the hardest, thing, one of the hardest things for me to see, guys, is I look into the, the eyes of some of these little girls, and you can tell that they have experienced things that they should not have experienced. They should not have ever have been subject to this. Truthfully, a lot of them were sold by their parents. The reason, they find it very hard to make a living, so they sell their daughter for $250. And she's either sold as food for someone, or she's used for sex. In the beginning, when you saw the 
blue tarps. That's where they put the little girls to have sex with them. And I really believe that as men of God, there are things in this life that are worth dying for, and especially things like this, above all other things. I want to read this to you again, folks, because I think it's very relevant to the body of Christ. If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? God knows what we do for his kingdom. Guys, in the book of Acts, chapter 10, let me turn to this. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. God remembers what we do. Guys, one of the things that I think there's a great misunderstanding of Christianity, we have this understanding that when we die, we go to heaven and we receive this great mansion. While salvation is a free gift of God, the rewards of heaven are earned. And if we never do anything for Christ in this life, why do we expect great treasure on the other side of eternity? The Bible says, in my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. But guys, it doesn't say they're all mansions, it says many. I've often wondered how many one-bedroom flats or two-bedroom condos there are. And I think it's strange to think that we never want to serve God, but we expect these great rewards. You were not brought into this world for the American dream. You were brought here to serve Christ. The Bible says, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Guys, with what's happening with the cartel, we're basically involved in six different wars around the world. Now, I'm going to tell you what the greatest desire of my life is, guys. I could be wrong, but I suspect that I will not live out my natural life. I have told my mother, Mom, if someday you hear I'm not coming home, do not tell the world it was a tragedy or a mistake. You tell them I ran the race I finished the course, and now there's in store for me a crown of righteousness. One day, I believe that I will stand before a holy God. And when I look him into the eyes for the first time, guys, I want to hear him say, well done, son. Well done. And folks, that's my prayer for you. As believers, the church, by and far, is filled with cowards. People who will not stand up for the King of Kings or the Lord of Lords. They're ashamed of their faith. But the Bible says, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. And it's so important that we really gird up the loins of our mind. Guys, we're living in a time Christians don't even know how to vote. You're voting for people who are pro-abortion, pro-perversion, and it's gotten ridiculous. They're trying to make it a hate crime if you confront people about their sin. 
You know, before I got saved in the Marine Corps, I was a violent man, and I liked to drink. And people would say, Wes, you're a violent man, and you, and you drink too much. I didn't look at them and say, you know, that's a hate crime. That was the truth. That's who I was. Why cannot people accept the truth anymore? Why do you lie to yourself and pretend that you don't know what is going on? You have a responsibility to serve Jesus Christ. The Bible says, throw off everything that so easily encumbers you and run with endurance the race that God has set before you. Guys, I'm going to share something with you, and please understand the heart of why I'm sharing this. I do not mean this as a boast at all. I'm actually a wealthy man. I could buy a house on the ocean and buy the fanciest of sports cars and live a life of leisure. But my wife and I do not want to waste our life on such foolish things. We prefer to give our money to the mission field, to caring for children, to feeding the poor, to caring for those who are in need. That's how we want to use our money. I want to live in a normal house, and when I stand before God, have a clean conscience. And I pray that you will do the same with your own life. In closing this morning, guys, we're going to give you an opportunity. And guys, the first thing that I want to say to you is Christians, we're supposed to tithe to our church. The Bible says to give the first 10% of what you bring in to your church. Today, we're going to give you a chance to sponsor some children. If you are tithing and it's all you can do to tithe, then don't come to the table back there. You've done your part. But if you can do it as a gift above and beyond, then we welcome it. We are raising the sponsors to keep these children safe. And we'll keep you updated yearly on what's happening with your child. We've blocked out the faces because of the danger to the children. We're living in that kind of a world now. On here, it tells a little bit of the story of every child. For this one here is Zita. Her younger sister, Samin, are from an indigenous community in Costa Rica. Continually, their families are known for the sinful act of incest between fathers to daughters. Zita and her sister were raped by their father from a young age. Feeling jealous and threatened, their mother cast them out of the house. That's when we got them. That's just one case. These children need to be protected. Then, it's $75 a month to sponsor one of these children. Then in Russia, we have what's called potatoes for grandmothers. We're feeding all the elderly over there. Elderly men, elderly women, are widows of soldiers. It's also 75. But guys, then we have our, what we call our ghost operations, and those are the pastors that are in the underground. Now, you cannot pick these up and walk away with them. We will not know if they're sponsored. If you would like to do it, you have to fill out the form. And it's just name, address, phone number, sign it at the bottom, and you pick out what you want to sponsor. Voided checks work best because we don't pay fees, but you can use debit and credit cards. Now, guys, in saying this to you, I'm saying this because I get asked every Sunday, and I want to head this off. People come up to me all the time and say, what if I want to do all three? Well, first of all, we're not asking you to do that. But we do recognize there are some people, very few always, that God has blessed abundantly financially. They have much more than they need. And they're able to tie through the church and not hurt the church. And if you happen to be one of those and you want to do all three, it's 225. But first of all, do not take away from the tithing of your church. Only do it if you can do it above and beyond. In closing this morning, the greatest privilege of my life 
has been to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not consider it a burden. And guys, I do not consider it a burden that I might have to sacrifice my life for his kingdom. I consider it a great honor to be able to have that privilege. We as believers need to change the way we think. And a lot of people say to me, well, I don't know what God's will is. Well, 98% of God's will is written right here. It tells you exactly what to do. There is the 2% mystical of if you're being led to go to be a missionary or to start a church. But the Bible tells us, it says, go to the poor, the widows, the orphans, those that are hungry, those that are in prison. It's not hard to know God's will. And if you start to do it, you will start to experience life and life abundantly. See, the thing that we need to remember is what the Bible says. It says, let your light so shine before men that they see your heavenly Father. We're not supposed to let our light so shine that we become famous, well-known, popular, rich, all very, very wrong motives. But let your light so shine before men that they see your Heavenly Father. We'll be out there if you want to speak to us. God bless you.